Welcome everybody this uh, Thursday night um, School for a Course in Miracles session. We're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter six past, I've lost so track of time, past couple of weeks, I think. <laughs> I don't know. We've, we started going over the text in depth. I don't know how much depth, but much more than we did before. <laughs> and in a chronological order. So a few weeks ago, we started with chapter one, and we've been seeing how Jesus has been evolving with these um, themes that he uh, brings up over and over again in the course, and then kind of expands the ideas and, and certainly fleshes those ideas out. And so tonight we'll be starting on chapter six. Um, forget the schedule, but I think it's tonight. And then uh, Sunday, Lynn will be doing chapter six, part two. And then somewhere in there, there's a chapter six, part three. <laughs> I think. But anyway, we'll, we'll announce those um, sessions as we go in our daily emails. Um, just wanted to frame a little bit um, how Jesus has brought us to this point in chapter six, where he's gone. The title of the chapter is Lessons of Love. And what he's gone through so far to arrive at that topic, to arrive at that title. In chapter one, he really introduced a brand new idea of miracles, not like um, Moses parting the Red Sea, not like Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. But right from the get-go, in the first 50 miracles, principles, he really presents the idea of miracles from where he's coming and what he's going to develop in A Course in Miracles. He's developing the idea of this change in perception, that with his help, we don't have to so much focus on our behavior and what to do and what not to do, but we need to change the way we see people, the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world. And this ch change in perception is what he calls the miracle. So not, not, no emphasis at all on worldly miracles as we know them, on behavioral miracles is one way of putting it, but on this internal shift in perception choosing eventually what he calls the Holy Spirit's point of view instead of the ego's point of view. It's always those two choices internally. Am I choosing the ego, the voice of separation, and I'm looking for trouble? <laughs> or am I choosing the voice of the Holy Spirit who constantly reminds us that nothing happened? The atonement principle is nothing happened. We couldn't leave heaven even if we wanted to. Our true identity as one son of God is still intact. And that's where he's going to take us back to that awareness of that, that our true identity is one son of God. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So in chapter one, he really laid down the idea of a miracle is not what you think it is. <laughs> and then he began to lay down the idea that everything you thought about anything wasn't what you thought it was. <laughs> Atonement wasn't what you thought it was. Forgiveness wasn't what you thought it was. <laughs> Jesus wasn't who you thought he was. Holy Spirit definitely was not who you thought he was. And he's developing not only a definition, a new definition, if you will, for each of those themes, but how to apply those themes in, in our daily, daily lives is where he's trying to get us to go. And have that fundamental shift in perception where we're not seeing ourselves as victims and we're not looking for victimizers all the time in this daily drama that we walk through. 
So chapter one is really about redefining miracles first. And then in chapter two, he, he really lays down these, what he calls two different thought systems. The thought system of separation of the ego and the thought system of forgiveness or atonement. The, the thought system of the Holy Spirit. That there are two different ways of looking at things and, and he's developing that theme in uh, chapter two. It's called separation and atonement. Chapter three, it's called The Innocent Perception, and he's really furthering his idea of what words mean. He really gets into this, even innocent perception, you know, he's redefining our perception. He's really redefining what an experience of in, looking for innocence instead of looking for sin, what that looks like, what that feels like. Um, and then in that chapter three, he's, he's comparing the realm of perception, the realm that we think we're in, compared to our true identity in heaven, which he calls knowledge. Knowledge is in, in the Course does not mean what we usually think it means. It means an experience of heaven, an experience of oneness. Chapter four, he really starts getting into what the ego is all about, <laughs> where the ego theoretically came from, um, how it's an idea, an internal idea. It's, a, it's an internal choice that we make. And he really kind of fletches out the whole ego thing in chapter four. In chapter five, he, he goes after the Holy Spirit, the other choice, the other internal choice we have, the voice of forgiveness, the voice of God, the voice for love. And he really um, uh, expands that idea of the Holy Spirit in a whole new way. Unlike, I mean, I was raised Catholic, so it's, it's not a Catholic definition of the Holy Spirit for sure. Um, and also in chapter five, he, he, um, he brought up the idea of guilt. And, and in section five, in chapter five, he really, um, it's the first real discussion of guilt, which is a huge theme throughout the, the entire course from here on out. That this idea that internally, when we chose the ego as our teacher, it's really, ego is just really a part of us that we made up. <laughs> the voice of separation the voice of blame, the voice that I could be separate from my father in heaven. So he really goes after the, 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 the feeling, the sensation, the experience of guilt that we made up to reinforce that we actually pulled off the separation. It's part of the ongoing story of what, what we call sin and guilt and fear. That internally we bought into a story we made it up and then actually believed it, that we separated from heaven, we separated from our Father, and now we're off and running and we're feeling pretty guilty about what we did, and now we're convinced God's also gonna punish us for the separation. And all, that, all those ideas are really presented, um, boom, 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 in, in chapter five, section five. So, and now we're up to ch chapter six where he's, he's gonna, continue to define the Holy Spirit's job, the Holy Spirit's job of helping us see a different way. But what he's really going to do with the guilt thing, <laughs> which is kind of mind-blowing when I'm looking at it, is he's going to bring it home. I mean, in, in, in chapter five, he was talking about guilt like it was some internal crazy place that we chose to experience this terrible feeling that I did something terrible. But now he's gonna bring it home to the, our, our stick figures in the dream, where we think we are in time and space, 
what I'm doing throughout a day. And, and this is the first time in chapter six where he talks about anger in the course <laughs> and what anger is all about. And, and, and literally, he, anger is simply an expression of guilt but now it's not my guilt, it's somebody else's guilt, and I'm mad at you for it. <laughs> That's the setup that Bruce was talking about all week. Is, is we set this whole thing up, and then we forget that we did it, and we project that onto all these people in the dream. But we're not calling it a dream, <laughs> we're calling it real life, and we know who's ripping us off. We know who's robbing us of our peace, and what he's gonna point out here our reaction to that is we're pretty ticked off. And so he starts immediately with chapter six, bringing guilt home. <laughs> In the world, we experience it as anger. We're upset. And we're upset for the reason we think, the opposite of chapter five. And we're often running with that upset and we're seriously finger pointing with that upset. So right off the bat in chapter six, in the intro, he's gonna talk about anger. And how it's, it's just this kind of repetitive cycle that we get caught in of, of blaming our brother for something we did. We don't know we are, we're blaming him for something we did. We think it's something he did. And then we just get caught in that loop. It reinforces that he's guilty and reinforces internally I'm guilty and I'm in the guilt loop. <laughs> it just keeps going round and round and round. And if all this isn't making any sense to you right now, don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll repeat this about 8 billion times. Because <laughs> this is what Jesus wants us to look at. The possibility that we're caught up in this loop and we can get out of it. So, starts talking about um, a, a number of different things in this chapter. He just kind of like drops them on us like he's been doing all along. So, the first thing he, he drops on us his first time in the course is this idea of anger. It's projected guilt. We took that internal guilt and we put it on somebody else and now we're mad at them because of what they did. <laughs> and so it's a way of avoiding the, the possibility that maybe internally I pushed Jesus away, I pushed God out of my awareness, and rather than let that silly thought go as if I could even do that, now I got to go find a brother to blame and be mad at. And so then, <laughs> so he, and he does all that in one little paragraph. Then he jumps into the crucifixion that you, you think you're upset because somebody's crucifying you. You don't use those words, but you're, you know, you're being nailed to a cross. Somebody's ripping off your finances. The coronavirus is going to kill you. Something external is robbing you of your peace. A person, a thing, a place, whatever. Maybe, maybe a political structure, but somehow, somewhere, we're finger pointing and we're saying, I'm being crucified, but I'm not using that phrase. So, and the way he, he presents the idea of crucifixion is he, he, he talks about his own crucifixion. Well, at least the story in the, in the four, four Gospels, that he didn't take it seriously. So however you think you might be being crucified, you don't have to take it seriously either. <laughs> you're not upset for the reason you think. You're not really being crucified. And then, you know, and then I'll start saying stuff like as he goes along, like the only person that's really crucifying you is you. <laughs> I mean, that's where he's going to go with this. And, and I'm not making this up. I'll show you. <laughs> In workbook lesson, just wanted to look at the titles. 
two of the really heavy duty lessons in the workbook, 198 and 196. 196 is on, 196 is on page 374. And this is where he's gone with this idea of crucifixion. Lesson 196 on page 374, just the first paragraph. It can be but myself I crucify. It can be but myself I judge. It can be but myself I attack. Ken, uh, I looked up, um, our favorite course teacher is Ken Wapnick. We use his material all the time. And he put out this glossary index for A Course in Miracles. And it's available on the uh, Foundation for A Course in Miracles website. Uh, it's a great book. <laughs> I always go running back to this because I know Jesus is redefining things. So I went in here and I looked up anger. And, and basically he said, um, Jesus uses the word about 95 times in the course, but it's totally synonymous with attack. You can replace anger with attack or attack with anger. The idea that I'm upset and I'm attacking, I'm judging, I'm pointing the finger at somebody. All those phrases are synonymous. And attack is in there, oh Lord, like 750 times. <laughs> he likes that word attack. Anger, you know, about 100 times. Attack, about 750 times. But they're really synonymous. This idea that I need to attack my brother. I might not do it out loud, but I'm certainly doing it in my head. <laughs> I'm judging all the time because I don't want to see where that judgment's coming from. And then the big setup is, it can be but myself I crucify. Every time I think I'm judging a brother, I'm judging myself. Every time I'm condemning a brother, I'm really condemning myself. I'm condemning his true self as the son of God. And I'm condemning my own true self as the son of God. And even if we don't understand that metaphysically, just at least intellectually begin to get, that's what he's saying over and over and over again. It, when you criticize a brother, you're just criticizing yourself as one son of God. So, lesson 196, it can be but myself I crucify. When this is firmly understood, <laughs> when we actually have an experience of that, and kept in full awareness, you, we, will not attempt to harm ourselves, nor make our bodies slave to vengeance. Interesting phrase, slaved, we've made our body slave to vengeance, meaning we believe we're these vulnerable things that can be attacked, that, that can be wreaked habit on, <laughs> whether it's by a virus or, you know, a financial system or, or, or a diet or lack of exercise or exercise, whatever it is, bodies are vulnerable, they can be attacked. And so in that sense, they're subject to the vengeance that we perpetrate upon ourselves. I mean, we're the ones running around believing we're bodies. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to go through, you can go through your day as a body, but you don't have to take it seriously. You don't have to actually believe it, <laughs> that you're a body. And even more to the point, you start with your brother because that's where you're pushing all the guilt on. That's where all the anger went. That's where the crucifixion went. So that's what he's trying to lay out here, what's really going on internally. Line two like when you really wake up to this, you will not attack yourself and you will re realize that to an attack another is simply to attack yourself. You begin to get a handle on that. 
you might not always like it. <laughs> but once Jesus gets his foot in the door and he shows you that when you attack a brother, it's really you, you're, you're beaten up, <laughs> you're less likely to do it. <laughs> There's a real sense of self-preservation here. <laughs> you will, line three, you will be free of this insane belief that to attack a brother actually saves you. That's what we walk around consciously saying to ourselves. I'm not, I'm not the bad guy, you're the bad guy. And in time and space, you probably are a bad guy. <laughs> Everybody is bad guy in time and space. That's why we came here, <laughs> to pretend we were bad guys. But usually our brother, and we're not calling him our brother at that point, usually there's somebody, somebody else that's way worse than we are. And like I say, in time and space, they, they probably are. <laughs> but that, what has that got to do with us as, as, a, as in our true reality as one son of God? Nothing, but we got to wake up to that. <laughs> we got to realize it, it's nothing, that nothing happened. And so that's where Jesus is willing to take us if we're willing to go there. Doesn't mean we, we don't, we, we, we treat our brother respectfully. It doesn't mean we have to put up with whatever crap they're trying to lay on us. But it just means I, I take it a whole lot less seriously. And uh, I don't know, back in the 80s and 90s, they called it tough love. <laughs> I don't know what they call it these days. <laughs> so, you will be free of the insane belief that to attack or judge or condemn a brother saves you, saves yourself. And you will understand that his true safety as one son of God is your own safety as one son of God. And in his healing, you are healed. When we wake up to our, 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 true, our brother's true integrity, we, we begin to wake up to our own true integrity, no matter what they're doing or not doing. Once again, it doesn't mean we have to put up with it in time and space, but we don't have to trash them. And because we're trashing them, we won't be trashing ourselves. And then he, he goes on. And these are the last two giant lessons, you know, in, in this last set of four lessons in, in the workbook in this set of 200, where he really fleshes out all the metaphysics. Lesson 198, it's on page 379. The title says the same thing. Only my condemnation injures me. Whenever only my judgment of my brother injures me. Doesn't have anything to do with him. <laughs> I mean, he might have a bad day because I'm judging him. You know, he might even be put in jail for whatever he did or didn't do. But it's going to injure me. It's going to hurt me. Only my judgment injures me of anything. And if, it, if I judge my brother, I have to be judging me too. That, that's what we, we, we begin to get a sense of that. And so he goes on, you know, like our egos scream the opposite of this first line. It says injury is impossible. And we go, hell no, <laughs> injury is really possible. Let me tell you what my brother did to me. <laughs> Let me tell you how I was injured. But he, he flat out says injury is impossible. As a son of God, you can't be injured. Your true identity outside of this dream is still intact. Your brother's true identity outside of this dream we're all having is still intact. Injury is impossible. It goes on, and yet illusions make illusion. So we, we took this internal story, this illusion of sin, guilt, and fear, 
meaning I separated from God, I feel terrible, God's going to punish me for it. It's an illusion, it's made up. And then rather than let that silly illusion go, we repress that whole thing and we project it out on somebody else. <laughs> That's the, Jesus is a real Freudian here. He really, he, he, he launches into projection in chapter six. The whole second section of chapter six is all about how we take this internal guilt and we project it on our brother. So he introduces anger, <laughs> why we're ticked off. And then he talks about his own crucifixion, you know, why you being bothered if it didn't bother me. And then in section two, he talks about projection, that that's what we're doing all the time. We're taking this inner choice to be separate and we're pushing it on somebody or something else, the responsibility for that. So illusion makes illusion. If you can condemn, you can be injured. Now, once we're walking around conscious of that, we'll let it go, of course. <laughs> Why would we judge anybody if we're just judging and beating up ourselves? If you can condemn, attack, judge, you can be judged, attacked, and injured. That's what we believe. It's not true. Injury is impossible. But if I can believe I can attack you and judge you for what you did, I expect you to do the same thing in return. And in fact, I'll beg you to do it. <laughs> I won't admit I'm begging you to do it. <laughs> but I want you to be a bad guy. I need you to be a bad guy. So I don't look at this silly idea I'm hanging on to internally that I believe I'm a bad guy for pushing God away. And he goes on. For you, line four, you believe that you can injure. We believe that we injured our connection with our father. We believe we separated from God. The ultimate injury. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no worse injury than believing you separated from God. You separated from heaven. I mean, even logically, in terms of time and space, not many people would argue <laughs> with that premise. <laughs> if you actually left heaven, if you actually broke your connection with your father, that's pretty bad. You got injured in doing that. You, you gave up heaven and eternity and love and peace to believe you were separate. That's the ultimate injury. And the right you have established for yourself can now be used against you. <laughs> oh, and it will be. <laughs> In time and space, that's what we're, we're looking for. We're looking for that, that right to injure to be inflicted on us so we can say it's not my fault, that I didn't choose this. So I don't realize it can be but myself I crucify. And then... Um, Till you lay it down, till you lay down crucifixion and judgment and attack as valueless, unwanted, and unreal. So that's where he's going with this whole idea of crucifixion, which is why he launches in chapter six with this whole crucifixion story. So if you want to back up a little bit, um, let's look at page 89 in chapter five. Two of the most, certainly I think, two of the most powerful sentences in, in the, these first five chapters is, is on page 85. One is paragraph three, line four. And he's saying this is an inner choice to exclude ourselves from the atonement. It's a, it's a, a conscious choice 
And then rather than let it go, we, we take that, we project it out, and we say, I didn't do it, somebody else did it to me. So that's what he's saying here. Internally, we exclude ourselves from the atonement, and Jesus is trying to be street smart here. It's the last ditch. <laughs> I, I didn't know he used that. <laughs> I use it all the time, but <laughs> Jesus used it first. It's the ego's last ditch defense of its own existence. I'm not part of the atonement. I left heaven, damn it. <laughs> and let me tell you why. I mean, that's what we're saying internally to Jesus all the time. That's the dark night of the soul. That's when we're insisting to Jesus that we really did pull off the separation. And we don't realize we're just hanging on to it, and it's silly. So the ego's last ditch uh, defense is, I'm not part of the atonement. <laughs> I actually separated. And I have a whole history of past lives to prove it, especially this one. <laughs> and, and we go in with that argument with Jesus, and he just stands there and smiles because he knows none of it's true. We can't separate ourselves from the atonement. He still loves us. That's why he's still there. <laughs> he didn't go anywhere. We're the ones that are pretending he's not there. So excluding yourself from the atonement is the ego's, our, our last-ditch defense of its own existence. It reflects both the ego's need to separate and your willingness to go along with it. <laughs> I mean, we're the ones that are internally, consciously buying into this. And we don't want to admit that's what we're doing. This willingness means that you do not want to be healed. <laughs> He's not being subtle here. <laughs> He's saying if you're not wholly joyous right now, it's your own damn fault. <laughs> you're just pretending you're separate. <laughs> you don't have to do this. Line, paragraph 5, line 1, he points out again, whenever you're not wholly joyous, it's because you have reacted with a lack of love to one of God's creations. You took that silly idea of separation, you projected it on somebody in the world, and now you're saying you're upset for the reason you think. Look what they did. A lack of love to one of your brothers. A lack of love towards one of God's creations. He's being nice here. He's not even calling it anger. <laughs> but lack of love certainly equates with anger. <laughs> lack of love certainly equates with judgment, with attack, with crucifixion. You react with a lack of love to one of God's creations. Somebody you're in relationship with. This weekend we have a whole seminar all day long <laughs> looking at relationships. <laughs> if you really want to immerse yourself in the course and immerse yourself in a, in a whole new way of thinking, <laughs> it's all about relationships. What do you do with all these relationships you've got? How do you see them differently? That's happening on Saturday. Um, so whenever you're not wholly joyous, it's because you have reacted with a lack of love to one of God's creations. I mean, he's talking about grievances, is what he's saying. <laughs> you're hanging on to some grievance about a brother, and you don't want to let it go. And that's why, that's, that's where we start. We start with whoever we're holding a grievance with, and we ask Jesus for help to help me, help us, Help, help me see him, my brother, a different way, the way Jesus sees them, without condemnation, without crucifixion, without attack, without judgment. It's possible to do that if we ask for help to do that.
And it doesn't mean we might still stay away from them. <laughs> we might not want to go near them, but it doesn't mean we have to judge the hell out of them. Actually, it, it's, it's judging the heaven out of them. <laughs> we, we actually have condemned him to a life without heaven. <laughs> That's what we're doing. You're not a son of God. You're some creature running around instead of God's creation. <laughs> it goes from God's creation to, to like a cr creature from hell is what we're calling our brother. What was that line the other day somebody came up with? I think it was Carol. She said, uh, we either want to kill our brother or uh, there's two choices. We can either kill our brother or we can resurrect him. <laughs> Meaning we can either judge the hell out of him and attack him or we can resurrect him in our own awareness and realize he's still one son of God. I mean, that's what the resurrection's about. It's not about anybody else's resurrection. We're the ones that need to resurrect. <laughs> We're the ones that need to wake up. That's all the resurrection is. We wake up from the fact that we're not these things that can die. We don't die and then resurrect. <laughs> we're just these things that can't die. <laughs> and our brothers are things that can't die. We're still one son of God. So, any uh, comments, thoughts, reactions, throw tomatoes, whatever. <laughs> Dave's got a tomato, I see it. <laughs> I'm sweating. I don't know about you. <laughs> that was rough. <laughs> I want to look at paragraph one on page 91, where he's actually talking about anger here. The relationship of anger to attack is obvious. Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's not. <laughs> but at least we know that if I'm angry at somebody, I'm going to attack them, even if it's just in my mind, and they deserve it. So it's kind of like justified attack. <laughs> it's not attack out of nowhere. It's not like I'm going to attack them because I'm having a bad day. But whenever I'm angry, my attack feels justified, even if it's just in my head, even if I'm not saying it out loud. That's what judgment is. It's judgment with this tinge of condemnation to it. Like what you're doing is just wrong. It's wrong. So the relationship of anger to attack, and certainly in my awareness, is obvious. But the relationship of anger to fear is not always so apparent. Anger always involves, and this is where the, he's, he's used the word projection, I think, prior to this a few times, but this is where he's really going to, in these sections, he's really going to talk about projection. Anger always involves projection of separation. And mostly the guilt that we feel for believing we separated. So it always involves projection of that separation and guilt onto my brother. And I'm saying, you're the one that robbed me of peace. Um, which must ultimately be accepted as one's own responsibility. That's what Jesus is going to lead us back to. Is the reason we're never upset for the reason we think. Lesson five. We're only upset because we're hanging on internally to separation. We don't want to let it go, and we don't want to admit something that silly. So it's our responsibility, but we don't know that. We just think we're ticked off at our brother. We're aware of anger, <laughs> and we're aware that our brothers should be punished for something, whatever it is they did or didn't do. But we don't realize that underneath that, it's a projection of our own guilt.
And that's where he's going to help us wake up to that. Which ultimately must be accepted as one's own responsibility rather than being blamed on others. That's why we came here. That's why we believe we're bodies, these vulnerable things that are, are what, what did Lesson 198 thing say? We're, we're objects of vengeance. <laughs> Was vengeance being wreaked on ourselves, for God's sake? <laughs> we don't have to do this. We don't have to believe there's, that we are these vulnerable things open to attack. In time and space, we are. I mean, that's what bodies are for. <laughs> that's why the coronavirus is attacking us. That's why we're trying to kill it. <laughs> that's why, you know, it's all in, you know, in the greedy money world, it's always one or the other. Bodies attack bodies all the time. But what's that got to do with us if we are not bodies? If we really are still one son of God, and, and we're still innocent, and Jesus still loves us, then, then that's a good deal. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to be looking for trouble all the time. And then he goes on, um, line three, anger cannot occur unless you believe that you have, number one, been attacked. I mean, that's consciously what we think happened. My brother did, I'm not calling my brother, somebody else did something to me. And I'm upset. And I'm upset for the reason I think. So that's number one. You have been attacked. You've been ripped off. Somebody robbed you of your peace. And number two, that your attack back <laughs> is totally justified in return. <laughs> now it's your turn. You're, you're, the other is going to pay to play here <laughs> for what they did to you. Your attack, your judgment is totally justified in return. And Line three, the ultimate, you are in no way responsible for what <laughs> any of this. <laughs> it's not your setup. <laughs> you didn't do it. <laughs> Look what they did, not what you did. You didn't choose to do this internally. You don't even know you have an internal, for God's sake. <laughs> and so that's the setup. Given these three wholly irrational, not to us, it makes sense to us. <laughs> I know why I'm upset. But to Jesus, given these three wholly irrational premises, the equally irrational conclusion that a brother is worthy of attack rather than of love must follow. He deserves it. He should pay. He needs to be punished. And that's what all history is about. <laughs> Who's punishing who? Who's on top so that they can punish the underlings <laughs> over and over and over again? <laughs> We've had lots of pandemics, for God's sake. We had 100 years ago. We just don't. <laughs> None of us were around when that one happened. And then we have a lot of in-between pandemics, too, <laughs> that we weren't even aware of if it didn't touch you or your family. Um, what can be accept, expected from insane premises except an insane conclusion? The way to undo an insane conclusion is to consider the sanity of the premises on which it rests. And from Jesus's point of view, all three of these things aren't true. Um, that, uh, that you really haven't been attacked, you can't be attacked. Number two, your, your own attack back is never justified. And number three, you're in no way responsible for it. Like, you know, 196. It can be, but myself, I crucify. <laughs> you did this. <laughs> you did this. We did this. 
And then we set it up so we didn't know we did it. You cannot be attacked. Attack has no justification. And you're responsible for what you believe. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I'm from Missouri. Show me. I don't believe that. <laughs> so, and the way he, he goes into this is his own story of biblical story of crucifixion. Like, I went through all that mess, and I didn't blame anybody for it. I didn't point fingers. I didn't get upset for a reason that wasn't true. <laughs> and that's what he goes on in, in the message of the crucifixion. Paragraph 3 on page 92. You have probably, pr probably more than probably, <laughs> you probably have. <laughs> in fact, if we're walking around as egos, you have to re react for years as if you were being crucified. That's why we came here. <laughs> I, I'm not crucifying anybody. Look what they're doing to me. I'm the one that's on the cross. Behold me, brother, at your hands I die. Classic line, and I think it's chapter 27. Behold me, brother, at your hands I die. Please crucify me <laughs> so I can blame you instead of me. And that's what we're begging for here. You probably have act, reacted for years as if you were the poor one being crucified. And he's like, nah. This is a marked tendency of the separated, those who believe they're separated, who always refuse to consider what they've done to themselves. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty being pretty blunt here. <laughs> I mean, he's not giving room for a whole lot of compromise on this one. <laughs> Projection means anger. Means when I take my own guilt and I project it on you, I'm going to get mad at you because I think you did something to me. Projection means anger. Anger fosters assault. Anger fosters assault. Meaning, I'm justified in, in, in punishing you back. And then, assault promotes fear. I've set up a whole cycle where now I'm afraid you're going you're gonna to do something to me because I did something to you. And I'm going to have to do something to you. And then you're going to do something more to me. Watch Ozark <laughs> on Netflix. <laughs> it's about a family going into hell and everybody's doing something to everybody. <laughs> and nobody's coming out of it. <laughs> but all of our lives are Ozarks. <laughs> We've all set it up to be crucified. Um, projection means anger, anger fosters assault, and assault promotes fear. The real meaning of the crucifixion lies in the apparent intensity of the assault of some of the sons of God upon another. A hierarchy of assault. <laughs> A hierarchy of crucifixion. You crucified me more than I crucified you. It's the opposite of the first uh, number one in the first 50 miracle principles, there is no hierarchy of miracles. Well, the opposite is true. There is no hierarchy of crucifixion. <laughs> First of all, there's no crucifixion at all. You can't be crucified. But we're running around believing there's all kinds of degrees of crucifixion. All kinds of degrees of the way I can be mistreated. Chapter 27, I think the opening in line is, or somewhere in that vicinity is, beware of the... Of of the, is it the tendency to believe yourself unfairly treated? <laughs> Hell, we're looking for unfairly treated. 
we're begging for unfairly treated. <laughs> Beware of that tendency there to do that. <laughs> to feel that you're unfairly treated. This, of course, is impossible and must fully be understood as impossible. Um, he goes on, let's see, let's look at paragraph six. As I have said before, as you teach, so shall you learn. And Jesus is not talking about the way we consider teaching. We don't go out on a street corner, <laughs> set up our little soapbox and start preaching the course. I mean, you could do that if you want. And let me know how that goes. I'd be really curious. <laughs> if you get any followers, I'm sure you will. But when he says teach in the course, he means demonstrate. As you demonstrate, so shall you learn. And what he, what he means by demonstrate is, as I offer you the blessing of innocence, I will demonstrate to myself that I'm innocent too, and that Jesus didn't go anywhere. And he still loves my brother, and he still loves me. So as you demonstrate to yourself, <laughs> so shall you learn. And you internally share that blessing of innocence with your brother. If you react as if you are persecuted, you are teaching persecution. This is not a lesson a son of God should want to teach if he is to realize his own salvation. Meaning there is another way. <laughs> like Bill said to heaven, there's got to be another way besides all the backstabbing we're doing in this university that we're all part of. There's got to be another way. This is not a lesson, yeah, in line four, rather teach your own perfect immunity, which is the truth in you, and then realize it cannot be assailed. So we offer to our brother the possibility that they're not, they can't hurt us, that they're still innocent. And in that experience, we will realize we're not being crucified ourselves, that we have that same invulnerable innocence still as one son of God, no matter what's being done to us. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what I, even biblically in the story, you know, he just wasn't phased by all the persecution, by all the, all the process that led up to the crucifixion. The Twelve stations of the cross and all that. I mean, it's a resounding story of he was not phased by this stuff. Well, there was a scene in, in uh, which probably didn't happen, <laughs> but there was certainly this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he thinks God's jumped ship on him. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? And we were looking at that the other day. It's not likely Jesus said that. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't blaming Pontius Pilate. He certainly wasn't going to blame God at this point either. <laughs> he wasn't blaming anybody. He knew his innocence as one son of God was still intact. He knew Pontius Pilate's innocence as one son of God was still intact, in spite of what they were doing or not doing. In line seven, you are merely asked to follow my example in the face of much less extreme temptation. <laughs> if you want to look at a bad story, watch Mel Gibson's The Crucifixion, The Passion of Christ. <laughs> he was saying buckets of, of red paint. Jesus was bleeding enough for about 55 people in that movie. <laughs> there was blood everywhere. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's the story that he did. Jesus did not take any of that seriously. <laughs> um, 
much less extreme than, than me and not to accept them as false justifications for anger. There can be no justification for the unjustifiable. If we're not really bodies, if we're still one innocent son of God, and that's our true reality, none of this judgment and condemnation is justifiable, not against you and not against me. Do not believe there is and do not teach that there is. Remember always that what you believe you will teach. Believe with me and we will become equal as teachers. So Jesus is really inviting us to do this with him. In fact, in any given moment where we feel stuck and we feel like, you know, like we're right, <laughs> which is, you know, you can't be upset and not feel like you're right. I'm right about who's the, who, the, who the problem is. Ask him for help at that point. It's not, you know, you can use it as an opportunity to go, I'm a bad course student. <laughs> I'm judging again. But you can also use it as an opportunity to ask Jesus for help to see past whatever you're laying on your, your, the other person at this point. We can actually have an experience of real forgiveness. Sometimes it takes a while, especially if it's been a resentment or a grievance you know, been around years, <laughs> probably lifetimes. But even those, I mean, we sit with Jesus long enough, even those will evaporate back into the nothingness from which they came. Paragraph nine, I elected, I chose for your sake and mine to demonstrate that the most outrageous assault as judged by the ego doesn't matter. Earlier, uh, one of the other ch earlier chapters, Jesus said, this is not a course about crucifixion. He's not asking us to be martyrs. He's asking us to wake up to that we can't be martyrs. <laughs> we're, we're, we are still an invulnerable son of God, like him. They couldn't beat it out of him. <laughs> they can't beat it out of us. And we can't beat it out of them. Is it, and if we're willing to have that experience with Jesus, to have that experience about our brothers and ultimately about ourselves, we will. As the world judges these things, but not as God knows them, I was betrayed, I was abandoned, I was beaten, I was torn, I was finally killed. That's a, that's a good crucifixion day. <laughs> Yeah, most of us, you know, we, we get a couple of those going, <laughs> and, and then we're, we're feeling pretty crucified, but he had them all going at once. <laughs> and it was clear that this was only because of the projection of others onto me, meaning the Bible writers, because <laughs> they were trying to blame somebody for being the bad guy, since I had not harmed anyone and had yielded many. Meaning, you know, the Pharisees were, felt like they were totally justified in, in crucifying him. They made a federal case. They believed it. <laughs> what else is new? That's what we do. <laughs> That's what we do to each other if we're, even, even when we're choosing, choosing up political sides. You know, it's okay to choose up political sides. Just don't take it too seriously. And use it as an opportunity <laughs> to ask Jesus for help. <laughs> I mean, that's what political sides are for. That's what everything's for. Any gripe we have against anybody, it's an opportunity to ask Jesus for help, to see them the way he sees them. Um, 
and he talks about that, the idea that the crucifixion, this is really, of course, about the resurrection, about waking up, about our waking up. And he says that in paragraph 12, the crucifixion, condemnation, judgment, betrayal, assault, attack, cannot be shared because it is the symbol of projection. But the resurrection, waking up, is the symbol of sharing because the reawakening, waking up, the reawakening of every son of God is necessary to enable the sonship to know its wholeness. And only this is knowledge. Only that knowing oneness is heaven. So he's taking us back to the door of heaven is, is where he's getting us to go to. And that's really what, um, in, uh, at the end of this chapter, in the lessons of the Holy Spirit, he's really, um, he's, he's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's job to bring us back to the, to the gate of heaven. And those are the lessons of the Holy Spirit. And the title of the, um, the chapter is Lessons of Love. But as Jesus' normal style, before he gets into the good stuff, he describes to us what, what we see as the bad stuff, <laughs> that we're crucified, <laughs> that I am upset for the reason I think, that I have been betrayed and torn and broken. And I mean, that's what we believe as bodies. So he's saying, you don't have to believe that because I didn't. <laughs> and I'll take you to a place where the Holy Spirit will show you that. And those are the lessons of the Holy Spirit that are at the end of this chapter. But he's working up towards that. So he's comparing the lessons of attack, the lessons of the ego, with the lessons of love in this chapter, with the lessons of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it could have been called the lessons of the ego versus the lessons of the Holy Spirit. But I mean, that's his style. <laughs> the titles are usually pretty nice. But he always starts out with where we think we are and what we think we're doing meaning crucifixion <laughs> is alive and well. <laughs> and I know who should be crucified. So that's what's going on with the crucifixion. And then in two, he starts talking about projection. Like where is all this coming from? What is this all about? And this is section two, it's on page 96. Oh, let's see, let's drop down paragraph one, Line four, exclusion and separation are synonymous as are separation and disassociation. I think disassociation just means you kind of, I mean, you got to split mind. You have the ego as a teacher and you have the Holy Spirit as a teacher and you kind of go with the ego. So you disassociate, you separate yourself from the Holy Spirit and then worse, <laughs> you disassociate from that awareness and you project it on the world. So the first disassociation is I push the Holy Spirit out of my awareness internally. And then the second dissociation is I, pro I project all of my sin, guilt, and fear on somebody in the world and I totally forget I have a mind. I'm disassociated from my mind. So those are the kind of two steps of disassociation, the two steps of separation and reversing that process is what forgiveness is all about. We reverse the disassociation. First, we admit maybe there is a mind and I can go back to it. And all this stuff in the world is simply a reflection of that. 
And then I can let go of the disassociation from the Holy Spirit and ask him for help to look at all this stuff a different way. So that's a long-winded definition of disassociation. They're all synonymous. Separation, guilt, disassociation. <laughs> they all basically mean the same thing. Whatever word works for you, that's fine. Line five, we have said before that the separation was and is disassociation and that once it occurs, projection, projection must become its main defense. The way I protect me from choosing the ego is I forget I have a mind that's chosen the ego. Sung Tzu's art of war is the best way to conquer your enemy is if they don't know you're, you're, you're the enemy. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't know who your enemy is, you're never going to win. <laughs> that's Sung Tzu's first principle in his three steps to winning any war. What's well, true with the ego, the ego knows, the ego probably told Sung Tzu that those principles of war, because the first step the ego does is he makes you unaware that it's even there, that we even have a mind where there's an ego choosing something that's crazy. And as long as we don't know that, we'll never let it go, and we'll keep blaming somebody else for it. That once it occurs, projection becomes its main defense or the device that keeps the ego going, because we don't know it's there. The reason, however, may not be so ob obvious at first, as you think, what you project, you disown. So what he's saying here is when we project that guilt that he talked about in chapter five onto somebody else, we don't think it's our guilt anymore. We don't think we're the bad guy. We think the other guy's the bad guy. And we're sure of it. <laughs> and then we go around and get everybody to agree with us. And then when they agree with us, we know we're right. <laughs> and even if they don't agree with us, we know they're wrong. <laughs> we'll go find somebody to agree with us for sure. So what you project, meaning your own guilt, you disown. You don't claim it. And therefore, do not believe that guilt is really yours. You are excluding yourself by the very judgment that you are different from the one on whom you project. I'm not as bad as that guy. Look what he did. I didn't do something outrageous. I didn't, didn't, whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> but they did. And so I'm different from them. And I'm insisting I'm different from them. And I can prove I'm different from them. That they are different from the one on whom you project. Since you have also judged against what you project, meaning when we feel guilty, it's terrible. <laughs> We've already judged that's a terrible feeling. But rather than let it go, the way we get rid of it is we project it. <laughs> I mean, that's the stupid. I mean, stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> the stupid thing was instead of just letting guilt go, because it's not real, we take that guilt and we project it on somebody or something in the world, and then we, we believe it's, they're the guilty ones. And we insist on it. And we work, and even if they go away, we'll find somebody else. We have to. Guilt needs to perpetuate itself, and the real source needs to stay hidden. Since you have also judged against what you project, you continue to attack it because you continue to keep it separated. This is the need to constantly find guilt out there. That's why people come and go. <laughs> I mean, it, it, 
even if you divorce somebody who you think is terrible. <laughs> I remember, never mind. I won't tell you what I call my ex-wife. <laughs> but anyway, it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. I mean, but you find somebody else. You have to. As an ego, you have to find somebody else to blame. And you will, because that's your job as an ego, until you wake up to what you're doing, that you're setting yourself up to crucify yourself. Since you have also judged against what you project, you continue to attack it because you continue to keep it separated by doing this unconsciously. Meaning, we're, obviously, we're not aware we're doing that. We think we're right. We think we're upset for the reason we think. By doing this unconsciously, you try to keep the fact that you attack yourself out of your own awareness and thus imagine that you have made yourself safe. That's how insane this is. I mean, you say this out loud and this is crazy. <laughs> I mean, if this is what's really going on, then Jesus, help me figure this out because this is really dumb. <laughs> I don't have to do this. I don't need to go find in bad guys. I can go through my day without having to do that. Paragraph three, yet projection will always and only hurt you. It can be but myself that I crucify. My own condemnation, my own attack, my own judgment injures me. That's what injures me, not your attack. My own attack injures me. Your projection will always hurt you. It reinforces your belief in your own split mind and its only purpose is to keep the separation going. We don't even remember we have a mind, much less we have access to the Holy Spirit. That's what all this in the world, this whole setup of the world is all about. Keep us on tangential issues. <laughs> what was that, chapter four, I think. <laughs> so the world is all about tangential issues. We take the real thing that's going on in the mind and we get preoccupied with all this stuff in the world so we don't know what the real problem is. Lesson 79, there's only one problem. Lesson 80, there's only one solution. And that one problem is not in the world. <laughs> it's internally where we're choosing ego. And we can let that go. That's the one solution. Uh, line three, it is solely doing all this projection is solely a device of the ego to make you feel different from your brothers and separated from them. And it works great. <laughs> and we get everybody to agree with us. <laughs> the ego justifies this on the grounds that it makes you seem better than they are, thus obscuring your equality with them still further. Projection and attack are inevitably related because projection is always, always, always a means of justifying your attack, justifying your judgment. Anger without projection is impossible, period. It's one of those period sentences. <laughs> you can't project and not be angry. You can't be angry and not have not projected. You can't have one without the other. If you're projecting, you're going to get ticked off. And if you're angry, it means you're already projecting and you don't know it. Once you begin to realize you're projecting and you take the responsibility back, things begin to change. You're not as upset. <laughs> you begin to take responsibility for it. And then Jesus will eventually show us that we're not the home of evil, darkness, and sin either. We did not leave heaven. We did not separate from him. We did not separate from our brothers.
We did not separate from our father. So uh, this is what projection does. <laughs> we have to find grievances in the world. We have to insist we know who the problem is. And then we go about trying to fix that problem in the world, which is why nothing ever changes. It's not addressing the real issue. Uh, paragraph seven on the next page, on page 97. The perfect equality of the Holy Spirit's perception is the reflection of the perfect equality of God's knowing. What the Holy Spirit sees reflects God's awareness that his son is still with him in heaven. Oneness is still a done deal. We're still one son of God. One of the, I'm not sure it says it in this section, but one of the ringing, um, resounding sentences in the course is projection makes perception. Projection makes perception. Meaning, I've taken this internal guilt and I'm projecting it on somebody else and now I perceive, I see, I know who the bad guy is. Projecting of my own internal guilt without admitting I'm doing that makes the, my perception believe that I know who's, who, who is responsible for my lack of peace. And, and, and the ego says, the ego says, God forbid you ever wake up to that because I'm gone then. <laughs> my, my autonomy as the ego is gone. It's shot. <laughs> if you ever come back inside and realize what you're doing, you'll let it go in a heartbeat. <laughs> um, the ego's perception, the ego has a perception too, has no counterpart in God, but the Holy Spirit remains the bridge between perception and knowledge between perception and heaven. Knowledge is always about heaven. By enabling you to use perception in a way that reflects knowledge, you will ultimately remember heaven. You will ultimately remember knowledge. The ego would prefer to believe that this memory is impossible. <laughs> I can't be saved. First, the ego says, you can't be saved, because look what you did. <laughs> and then internally, the ego says, I can't be saved. So we, we learn how to let go of both those beliefs. You can't be saved, and I can't be saved, is what we're letting go of. So, let's see. So this whole, whole section is about the relationship between projection and perception projection of this internal guilt and the way we wind up believing we see things. That, that's the setup. <laughs> that's the way it flows until we step back out of that anger cycle and we step out of that, that insistence that I'm angry, angry for the reason I think. I'm upset for the reason I think. Um, and then Lynn will talk about, um, on Sunday morning, the relinquishment of attack in section three, the relinquishment of judgment. Like I could, I could have a V8, I could choose the Holy Spirit instead of the ego. I could choose forgiveness instead of attack. So the relinquish of that, and it's, it's a real short section. <laughs> it's real succinct to the point. And then the only answer in section four is an interesting take on the decision maker. 
He actually uses the word maker in there a few times. He doesn't call it the decision maker, but he talks about that maker in our mind, M-A-K-E-R, in the very first paragraph, actually a couple of times later too, where that's the part that chooses, makes up the ego and then believes it's the ego. It's the part of our mind that chooses to believe in the ego. And the only real answer, of course, is to listen to the Holy Spirit. And then uh, section five, <clears throat> which uh, we'll look at partially on, on Sunday morning and then more on Monday. Section five, the lessons of the Holy Spirit, that whole introduction there on page 103 is he's really t treating us like kids. <laughs> he, he calls us children at least two or three times <laughs> in, that, in that opening. Like, I'm going to, you're, you're, you're little kids, for God's sake, just let me teach you something else here. <laughs> just be open like a little kid is open because I'm going to show you something brand new, <laughs> something really beautiful, <laughs> and you'll really like it when you see it. So he's really appealing to us as little kids <laughs> because we're acting like dumb little kids is what we're acting like. <laughs> and he wants us to wake up. So he kind of treats us that way. And then he goes into the first, there's four lessons of the Holy Spirit. At the end of chapter six, he only goes over three. To have, give all to all. That's that whole giving equals receiving thing. Um, and then the idea of if you want to have peace, you have to demonstrate peace. And then finally, to be vigilant with the Holy Spirit about your ego. <laughs> That's where he goes with it. But those three lessons, those three lessons that he talks about, those three steps, he walks us through those steps. And finally, the fourth step, the fourth lesson, if you don't see it, because <laughs> it's kind of hidden in there, the fourth lesson doesn't happen until chapter seven, the beginning of chapter seven. He calls it the last step. God kind of sucks you back into heaven. <laughs> that's a good ego way of, of describing it. <laughs> but that, that, that's all the last step. God takes you back to heaven. You're fine. You, you were never not fine. And you realize you were never not fine. So that, those, that's pretty much where he's going with all of chapter six. We'll continue talking about that on uh, Sunday morning. And... Now I'd like to do a closing meditation. I'll try 249 in the workbook. Looks like it's on page 418. Two forty-nine in the workbook. So what the Holy Spirit is really teaching us here is forgiveness. And how to do that. How to let go of believing I know who the bad guy is. <laughs> And then finally, how to let go of believing I'm, I'm the bad guy internally. So forgiveness does all that. And he talks about, um, it, it unlocks that vice of bitterness, the vice of anger that we got ourselves in, the vice of conflict. I mean, it sounds terrible. It is, <laughs> it is. Walking through a day having to look for victimizers is a vice of bitterness. It, it's awful. <laughs> And he's trying to get us to look out at how awful it is. And then he'll, he'll show us another way of going through our day and then another way of looking at ourselves internally. So forgiveness does all that. Um, and in that whole process, we let go of believing we suffer. We let go of believing we can lose. We let go of believing in death. Uh, we let go of believing we're separate from heaven. 
is a good deal <laughs> that he's offering. <laughs> Try it, you'll like it. So Lynn, you wanna read 249 and we'll get quiet for a little bit. Sure. <laughs> Forgiveness ends all suffering and loss. Forgiveness paints a picture of a world where suffering is over. Loss becomes impossible. And anger makes no sense. Attack is gone and madness has its end. What suffering is now conceivable? What loss can be sustained? The world becomes a place of joy, abundance, charity, and endless giving. It is now so like to heaven that it quickly is transformed into the light that it reflects. And so the journey which the Son of God began has ended in the light from which he came. Father, we would return our minds to you. We have betrayed them, held them in a vice of bitterness, and frighten them with thoughts of violence and death. Now we would rest again in you as you created us. Gently, gently, if you're anger, anger free and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> <laughs> For a few minutes anyway. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks thank everybody. you, everybody. Thanks for hanging in there. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. See y'all.